May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I hold in my hand this morning one United States penny, one one-hundredth of a dollar bill. But don't laugh at my penny. Don't you dare laugh at my penny. It is worth about two minutes of physical labor in Haiti, where the average annual salary is $772 a year, less than $3 an hour. And if that doesn't impress you, I thought about this the other day when I was carrying in in, um, 40-pound bags of rock salt to uh, the the house, you know. It it would take me about two minutes or a minute and a half or so to carry this big bag of rock salt from the the car through the garage, down the basement stairs, put it in the basement. So if out there in the car right now I would tell you there's a a 40-pound bag of rock salt, it would take you about two minutes to carry that bag of heavy rock salt from the parking lot, into the church, down the basement steps. You could do that in about, in about two minutes. About a penny's worth of labor in Haiti. And if you lived in Haiti, you could do that all day, every day, for about a penny a trip. In Mozambique, Africa, I was there a few years ago, one U.S. dollar was worth, uh, their, their currency is called Metacash, um, one U.S. dollar was worth, at that time, 25,000 Metacash. So one U.S. penny would buy, buy about 250 Mozambican dollars, enough to buy fresh bread every day for an entire week. See, my penny's not so valueless after all. It's, what's more, you don't know what type of penny I have in my hand. If this penny was a 1914 wheat penny, it would be worth $4,000. And if it was a 1909 wheat penny, it would still be worth $3,000. In fact, if it was a 1925 wheat penny, it would still be worth $300. But it gets better. It really does. If it was a 1944 steel wheat penny, or even a 1943 copper wheat penny, either one of those, this penny would be worth $100,000. Hmm, and so it might not be nearly as worthless as you thought, right? $100,000 would buy a lot of pizzas, I think, wouldn't you? I mean, uh, you could do a lot with that kind of uh, penny. And, and I was thinking how nervous the treasurer would be. Thank goodness he's not here today because he would be thinking that all we're going to get in the offering is a bunch of pennies. But maybe not. Maybe you hold on to them. For most of us, though, a penny is completely worthless. I mean, it's completely worthless. I mean, suppose for just a moment that you had no, no interest in being kind to me. And I don't know why you would have no interest in being kind to me. I'm always kind to you. But suppose you had no interest in being kind to me, but but purely out of self-interest. You know, you were operating, and I said to you, there's this 40-pound bag of rock salt out in my car. I'd like you to carry it to the basement of the building for me. But you had no interest in being kind, hypothetically speaking. You were just going to do it out of self-interest alone. There's no way in the world you would do it for a penny, would you? You wouldn't go out there. I couldn't pay my children. I mean, a dollar to do it, probably. You know, no, I don't think so, Dad. I, I think I'd have to demand it, right? You're going to go do it. So, uh, you know, we mostly wouldn't see a penny as valuable at all. A thought experiment. Suppose I take this penny right now and I toss it out to the floor. Do you suppose that anybody in this room would even think about getting up to get it? 
I mean, no one over five years old would even think about picking up a penny off the ground unless they, and even they would only pick it up because they might be edible, right? You know, they're going to stick it in their mouth or something. Nobody picks up a penny. If you're walking to the car as you leave this morning and you see a penny on the ground, you wouldn't even bother to stoop down and pick it up. Oh, you say, I might now. It might be a 1943 wheat penny. And who knows? I, I might want that one. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, on Monday, the Canadian Royal Mint will no longer issue Canadian pennies. No longer will it be accepted as legal tender in Canada after some certain period. Uh, businesses are told to round to the nearest nickel. And, uh, and the Canadian penny is gone. It is dead. We should have a service for the long-lost Canadian penny. And Americans, if Jim Colby, uh, a congressman from Arizona, has his way, the American penny will go the same way because even these current pennies take 1.4 cents of zinc to make a single penny. The penny is worth more in its metallic value than it is in its spending power. It's about to uh, eclipse one and a half cents per penny. So your pennies are worth, you know, whatever, what is that, 50%? I don't know. They're worth more than what the the spending power is. You should save your pennies and melt them down. Uh, And and so pennies are worthless to us. They're, They're completely gone. When's the last time you stopped to evaluate Stop to think about things that are really valuable in your life. The last time you thought about something that's really valuable and how it is that you value it. You see, I, I think one of the great misfortunes of, of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and particularly the 13th chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians, is that we read it almost exclusively at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not self-centered, and so on and so on. The the 13th portion of 15, uh, Paul's letter was actually just written as one long letter. We have since portioned it off. The 13th part, we think, belongs to weddings because, after all, he uses the word love nine times in 13 verses in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And isn't that what marriage is all about? Love. True love. I, I always want to do that at a wedding, you know, if you, those of you who like the Princess Bride. I, I never done it, but I always want to. It, it always crosses my mind. Isn't that what marriage is about? It's about love, right? And so, naturally, this is the place to read this chapter. But I want to tell you that Paul doesn't have matrimony or marital bonds or that sort of, that sort of love anywhere in his thinking as he writes this chapter. You know already there are are different types of love. Parents love their children, and children love their grandparents, and husbands love their wives, and vice versa. And young people who are, you know, dating love one another. Those are all different types of love. In in Greek, there are different words even for love. In, In English, it's really difficult because we love chocolate cake and we love our dog and we love, you know, our neighbors and what, but, and and so all the same word, but in Greek, there are different words. Philos, from which, um, the city Philadelphia, uh, Adelphos is brothers, um, Philos is love, so city of brotherly love, you know that. It's a, it's a love of, of kinship. It's brotherly, sisterly, neighborly kind of love. Eros in Greek, from which the word erotic comes, which is the physical, sexual types of love. But then there's another word in Greek. It's agape, 
Agape is, is not like those types of love at all. It, it's much more intense than family love. It's much more, um, it's much broader. It's, it's, it's people in general. It's, it's deeper, more uh, intense than any other type of love. In the King James Version, chapter 13, the word love is translated charity. Charity is patient, charity is kind, and charity is long-suffering, and so on. But in, in our word, in our world, I mean, in our language, in our modern parlance, charity has been completely destroyed, hasn't it? Charity for us is, is, is like... Philanthropy with lower expectations. Uh, uh, charity is like, it's like the, the, the dollar that you put into the red kettle at, at the Salvation Army at Christmas time. Charity is a, is a $5 bill that you slip out your window of your car to a guy holding a cardboard sign standing on a street corner. Charity isn't, it, it, at its best, it's a check you write to some good work or some, some, uh, some organization. It's not love, though, in our language. Charity is not love in our language. It's pity. It's not love at all. It's it's more akin to a tip that you leave on a table at a restaurant for the waiter or waitress. Charity is, is sort of a social convention, an expectation... A minimum amount of decency. This is, this is sort of what you have to do. And none of that, none of that, it's not philos, it's not eros, it's not, you know, tipping kind of kindness is what Paul means when he says, when he uses the word agape, love. It's not the bubbling feelings that newlyweds have. It's not giving to the poor, supporting the art museum. Supporting the Philharmonic, which, by the way, means love of music. It's none of these types of love. This isn't what Paul is talking about. It's not an emotion at all. It is, it is a disposition, an attitude, a, an awareness that all people are valuable. That all people are of immense worth. It has no interest in reciprocity. Agape is not considered, is, does not consider rather what it's going to get back in, when it gives. It gives because it knows that another person needs. And so it just is simply going out with no expectation of coming back. It is truly blind. Agape love is blind. We've heard that love is blind and you see people and you're like, oh my goodness, can't they see? Really? Um, I, I remember when I, when I taught university and I would see um, these young girls with great potential who would date these guys that were like horrible for them. And I would say to them from time to time, uh, uh, what are you doing? You know, are you awake? Do you not see this? I mean, there were better guys for you out there. No, 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 no seeing at all. Of course, people probably said it to my wife as well, but that, she improved me. I, I, I gained in, in ground maybe a little bit along the way. Agape love is blind because it values all people equally. Because agape love believes that all people are equal. That all people are of equal and estimable worth. It is un. Conditional love. It is the kind of love that God has for the human family. For God so loved the world. You remember this verse, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is how much God... And the word is the same. Agape. 
if you have your bulletin, look at the, at the lesson in 1 Corinthians 4. This is what love, unconditional love, looks like. Verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, wouldn't it be great if every husband loved his wife with this sort of love, and every wife her husband? Wouldn't it be fantastic if every child loved his or her parents with this sort of love, and every parent their child? Wouldn't it be wonderful if every family loved each other just this way? Of course it would. But here's the thing. This love isn't limited to family relationships. Paul says this is the way that all Christians should love all people. All the time. I mean, constantly, in every place. So this is what he means by love. Now, here's a second important thing. How does this then fit into the context of his letter? What's the literary place in which this this, uh, description of love finds itself? Well, as you might know, the city of Corinth is a city in Greece where Paul planted an early Christian church on one of his earliest missionary journeys. And so you have this little church in this city of Corinth that was, by all accounts, the most licentious, the most... um, Pagan, the most wicked city in all of the ancient uh, Greek world. In fact, so bad were the Corinthian people, so wicked were they, that, that it, to say that somebody was like a Corinthian was a, was a sort of slur that you would use throughout the Greek world. Other Greeks thought the Corinthian Greeks were of the worst sort. It would be like, imagine there was no church in the United States, and you planted a church in a city known for its, its uh, wild and sinful ways. I don't know, maybe Vegas. You know, it's the very first church you ever planned in the, in the country. This is the context in which the city of Corinth was in. And Paul writes his letter because this little fledgling church is filled with all sorts of problems. I mean, all sorts of problems. There are 15 chapters in this, in this first letter that cover about 11 different problems. Power struggles, gossip, people were suing one another in court, Um, Gnosticism, an ancient heresy, sexual immorality, including homosexuality and incest, people who denied the the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and and they abused the Lord's table. In other words, a a sort of short list of what's going on in the Anglican Communion around the world. But besides that, these are serious problems. I thought that was funny. There are serious problems here in this church. But one of the biggest problems they had was this sort of um, uh, desire to be noteworthy. Everyone wanted to be important. And the way that they did it was to exploit what they call spiritual gifts. When you come to faith in Jesus, that the Lord actually gives you something. He actually gives you a gift that makes you useful to the church and the world. And, and they knew this in Corinth. And they wanted one of three particular gifts. They wanted to be prophets. That is, one who spoke for God. They wanted to have this great oratory ability to, to stand up and speak a word for the Lord. 
Some wanted to be sages. They wanted to have this great divine knowledge, this secret wisdom, this sort of gnosis, this, uh, this secret spiritual knowledge, so that people would come to them and seek them out for advice. And a third group were those who wanted glossolalia, this ability to speak an unlearned language. I don't know if you have ever tried to study other languages. I'm sure you have. It's painstakingly difficult, isn't it? I would love to wake up and be able to speak French. I just think that would be awesome, you know, never to have to, uh, you know, buy a book or, or do that. What's that? Um, what's the computer program? You know that. I, never to have to do that sort of thing, but just to wake up and speak it. Or, or to speak Spanish. I know, whatever. To, and this was a gift that people were seeking. And some of them were saying, I'm not even speaking in a known language. This is an angelic, heavenly language. And they were sought after because this was very important. Made them, made them feel so important in the church. Glossolalia was the creme de la creme of the spiritual gifts. And everybody was wanting it. Everybody wanted to do it. They, were, they would practice it in public. I think many of them were faking it. You know, They were making it look like they, they were doing it. To get the attention that they were craving. This is the context in which chapter 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians... Comes. Chapter 13 is a correction to people who are pursuing spiritual gifts for their own self-importance. Instead of becoming powerful, noteworthy, Paul says, why don't you seek the very best gift? Verse 1, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, even such a thing does exist, but have not agape type love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Noisy gong. The word Paul uses actually means when you throw coins into a copper pot and shake them around. I mean, it's like the the very worst garage band, you know? Not even a good garage band, but a very bad garage band that's out in the garage and they're just banging around and making noise and you're like, oh, please stop that. You You know what I'm talking about, that sound. It's the CD that my kid leaves in my car after he drives it. Oh, goodness, what is this horrible stuff? This is what Paul is saying. If I can speak with the languages of, you know, whatever language you want, human language, French, Spanish, whatever. Even if I could speak in angelic languages. But I don't possess love. Real, agape, unconditional, unself-seeking love. I am nothing. Listen, look again. Will you look with me at 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 the chapter? It's snowing outside. You have a whole... Anywhere to go. It, 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 look at the chapter, verse 2. If I have prophetic powers, notice the emphatics, and understand all mysteries. You see that? And all knowledge. If I understand all, everything, all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have, here it is again, all faith, so as to remove mountains. I mean, that'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? In faith that would move mountains. But have not love. I wish you had a pencil. I tell you to underline this. I am what? Nothing. Zero. Zilch. Nada. If I give away all that I have. I mean, count everything that you have. Just a little mental calculation. You know? I give it all away. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Give it to me if you're going to. But I give it all away. If I give up my body to be burned as a martyr, I mean, I don't know how much more you could give, right? But have not love, look at it, 
I gain nothing. I am worthless. I am valueless. I have no gain in the world. I don't know if you like to read biographies. I love to read biographies. I was down in Florida and I was visiting Marnie. And she had this biography on John Quincy Adams. So I read it. Um, she, she said, you can't take it with you. I said, I'm going to read it right now. And so I read it all the way through. But only because she hadn't finished it. And, and so I, I, I read, fantastic, what a great story. JQA, we're on first name basis now. Um, and, and I loved her. Have you read Metaxas's biography on Bonhoeffer? Fantastic. Oh, you have to read this. If you haven't read it, see me. I have it at home. I'll bring it to you. Maybe you should read um, Ken Collins' biography on John Wesley. It'll blow your hair back. It's amazing. Or, or you should read the, the Life of Martin Luther, Francis Assisi, Julian of Norwich, all these great people. George Mueller. You ever heard of George Mueller? He was a, a German, Prussian, actually. But he was a German, went to live in England, started these, um, these faith orphan, orphanages, believed that God had called him to start an orphanage and, and that God would supply all of his means. And so he didn't ask anyone for support. Just believe that the Lord would send support his way. And he did. There's this great story where he sits down at the table, has all these orphans sitting around the table, not a stitch of food anywhere in the house. And they have plates. They have all their plates set out there, their, their silverware, pitcher of water, not a stitch of food anywhere. And he tells these orphan children, bow your head, and he begins to pray. And he says, Lord, we thank you for the food that you are going to deliver to us. He said, Amen, and no sooner that, there was a knock at the door. I'm not, uh, this is the story. He goes to the door, and there is this guy who has this, like, milk truck that, that broke down. It's loaded with cheese and meats and milk, and, and it was like a, you know, the old one with the, the ice in the back. It's like a horse-drawn carriage. The wheel broke off of it. The guy said, this is all going to go to waste. Can you use this? Of course I can. And he brings it in. Listen, if you read the lives of the saints, you'll be amazed at their faith. You'll be amazed at this, the, the preaching witness. John Wesley would preach and thousands of people would come to hear him. Tens of thousands of people in, in England in the 18th century with no microphone or anything. Great oratory abilities, great faith, great wisdom. Paul says all of that would mean nothing without love. Nothing. Love is the essential part of it. It is the thing that makes a saint a saint. What makes a saint a saint is not their ability to preach. It's not their ability to believe. It's not their ability to have great knowledge and insight. It's not their ability to write or become well-known in the world. Every single one of us can become a saint. Because all it requires is this, that we love like God loves. That's all it requires. I, I love Merton's book where his friend says, the only thing that holds you back from being a saint is your desire to be one. You want to be a saint? You can be. I started this morning talking about pennies and how they're, they're valueless. You knew we were coming back to that sooner or later, didn't you? And I thought about as I went, pennies and, and how money used to be attached to gold. This is like word association in my mind. And, and I eventually made my way to gold, the Gold Rush show on TV. Have you ever seen that, this Gold Rush show? There's like a, it's like a documentary reality show where they, they follow these people around who are, who are mining gold in Alaska. 
Apparently, it's still a big deal to mine gold in Alaska. And it's really amazing because these work crews, they bring in this huge, heavy equipment. They work hours and hours and hours digging up earth, sifting through it, getting this little tiny fine dust of gold out of the earth. And they shake it all down and work it all down, and eventually it comes into this little powder, and they'll spend a whole year collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gold, and it fits in a jar that a small child can carry. And that's what we think is really valuable. That's what in our world is really valuable. And Paul says, I mean, crazy Apostle Paul, he says that is not what's valuable. Well, it might be valuable to some. What's really valuable is a person whose heart has been so transformed that they love every single person the way that God loves them. He tells the Corinthians, that is something to be pursued. And I think he's right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.